I walked in the house this morning and people saw that I was all hooked up, that it kind of became the assumption, Marty's preaching this morning. And so I had a couple of people ask me, are you going to tell another Stuart story? And so for everyone that wants to hear a Stuart story, I will not disappoint you this morning. I also had another couple ask me if I was going to incorporate any Hebrew into the sermon this morning. And I said, do I have breath in my lungs? Of course I'm going to put some Hebrew in there. So let me start this morning with a Stuart story. Stuart and I had only been married for three, maybe four years. We had just moved into a little bungalow home uh, down in the historic district between Camp Bowie and West 7th Street. And we were just as happy as we could be in that little house, and it was time for my birthday. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, my birthday is December 22nd. It is a very special day. Don't forget it. (laughs) It was time for my birthday, and we had decided that because of just a lot of different things that were going on, and because we were in such a hectic Christmas season, that we would just have a private dinner at my favorite restaurant, and that would, that would be my birthday. And so I was actually okay with that. And so Stuart, anyone who knows Stuart, you know that one of Stuart's favorite pastimes is smoking briskets. Now, I'm so glad that's one of his favorite pastimes. <laughs> And so Stuart had smoked a brisket that weekend, and what we do is we take it and we section it off into meal portions, and then we we have like one of those little suck-freeze things that pulls the air out of it, and then you can freeze it and it stays fresh longer. And so I'm putting these sections of brisket into the freezer, and this is on a Saturday, and Stuart says, hey, why don't you leave out two sections of the brisket? And I'm like, what for? And he said, well, just go ahead and let's cook it all up at once, and that way I can eat brisket all week long. And I said, all right, fine, that's okay. Then it's Sunday morning, and I'm going to put some potatoes in the oven and put on some green beans, and we're going to have brisket and baked potatoes and green beans for lunch after church. And so I'm wrapping up the baked potatoes to get them in the oven, and I put two in there, one for me, one for Stuart. And Stuart says, hey, why don't you put some more baked potatoes in the oven? And I'm like, what for? And he said, that way we can have baked potatoes to go with the brisket all week long. And I'm like, well, how many baked potatoes do you want? And he said, make it eight. Put eight baked potatoes in there. So I'm putting green beans into the crock pot, and I put two cans of green beans in there. And he says, why don't you just put six cans of green beans in there so we can have green beans all week? Now, what I didn't tell you is that Saturday night, he said to me, you know, baby, I'm craving that three-layered carrot cake with cream cheese frosting that you make. Would you make that cake and we can have it tomorrow and I can eat on it all weekend? So I am completely not suspecting anything. So go to church. Pastor Des preached that morning, and we head back home. We pull into our driveway, and there are already three or four couples already there. And when we pull in, and then here comes Pastor Des and Mary behind us. He had me cook my own birthday. (laughs) When Pastor Des found out what he had done, 
in his precious Welsh accent, he said, Stuart, we should have you speak at a men's conference and teach us all to do this. <laughs> My husband pulled a prank on me. And it worked. It worked quite well. And honestly, I am such an extrovert. I was just so happy that we had a house full of people. I was just glad to have people there. And it didn't bother me that we had cooked or that I had cooked the entire birthday lunch for myself. <laughs> that was a precious moment and a little on the, on the deceptive side, but quite innocent. I don't have to tell you guys today that there's another kind of deception at loose in our world. It's not a deception that's cute and sweet. It's a deception that's malicious and evil. If you have your Bible or if you want to follow along with me, I want to read for you Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to actually be in the first three chapters of Daniel this morning, but this section captures the heart of where I want to go. Starting with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, which is also Babylon, to the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, king, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him, them to, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily rations from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, whose name means God is judge. Hananiah, whose name means God is merciful. Mishael, whose name means there is no God like Yahweh. And Azariah, God will help or God will be my help. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to each of them. And to Daniel, he, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel, one of the Canaanite gods, protect his life. To Hananiah, he gave the name Shadrach, which means at the command of the moon god Aku. To Mishael, he gave the name Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And to Azariah, he gave the name Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, who was the god of wisdom. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now, that is beautiful historical narrative, but it tells a story. There's a book that's been recently released by two guys, not Christian, or at least they are not professing themselves to be Christian. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt wrote a book, and the title of the book is The Coddling of the American Mind. 
Now, in this book, they make three great statements, and they say that there are three untruths that have gotten into society. It may have started on the college campuses of this country, but it has now become a global academic, a global philosophical epidemic. One of these guys is a First Amendment lawyer. The other guy has a PhD in social psychology. Here are the three lies, or the three untruths. Untruth number one, you must avoid bad, uncomfortable, awkward experiences at all cost. The way that this has played out on college campuses across the U.S., and from what I understand, now even globally, is that if the professor is lecturing on something and you are uncomfortable with what they're lecturing on, then you can say, stop. And at that point, you can go into a room called a safe room. And in this safe room, there will be videos of puppies and kittens. There will be soft music playing in the background. There will be crayons and coloring books and bubbles. Anything to calm you down and make you once again feel safe and secure. It has moved from that to now in college campuses across this country and even globally that if a student says, I am uncomfortable with this topic or with this lecture, the professor is now obligated to stop the lecture and move on to the next topic. Because we cannot allow anyone to feel uncomfortable or awkward at any cost. It's even got to the point that one university, Berkeley, that was once known for having very debatable lectures, Lecturers that would come in and that would promote or even provoke antagonistic ideas and arguments and conversations that those lectures are no longer permitted because if you come in and you teach or you lecture on something that does not qualify as being comfortable and okay, then you are no longer welcome on that campus. Can I just say that we have been comfortable long enough we have been in situations to where we've not felt awkward long enough. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be uncomfortable. It will make you awkward. And if you are not in an uncomfortable, awkward situation, you're not doing it right. Jesus will stretch you. He will put you into circumstances and situations that are so far beyond you that you will have to rely on the Holy Spirit working through you to get through those moments. God will put you in uncomfortable circumstances and situations in order to promote growth in your life. That's lie number one. Lie number two, you must trust your emotions over reason at all times. In the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, the declaration was the Descartian view, I think, therefore I am. But something happened in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s so that by the 21st century, now our declaration is, I feel, therefore I am. My feelings do not have to be rooted in ration and reason. My feelings can just simply be a feeling, but I have to accept my feelings above my reason. Or let me make it more clear. I have to accept the world's feelings above ration and reason. Can I tell you 
What God gives us as revelation is beyond feelings and it's above reason. When God gives us revelation, it will be worked out in the realm of reason. Because God is not a foolish God. He is all-wise, all-powerful, and all-knowing. And revelation is not without reason. It's just a reason that's above my ability to comprehend. If I allowed my feelings to rule me, I would not be standing in this place today. I would have quit a thousand times over. My marriage would not be successful. It would have been over before it ever got started if I trusted my feelings above my reason. If I trusted my feelings above the word of the living God. Untruth or lie number three. You are good. Therefore, all of your thoughts, your ideas, and your opinions are good. And anyone who disagrees with you is bad. Therefore, it is us and them. Everyone who agrees with me is us, and everyone who disagrees with me is them. When I read this in The Coddling of the American Mind, something clicked in the back of my head. I started thinking, I know this. This is not new. I have seen this, at least in some sort of embryonic form, I have seen this somewhere before. I saw it in Babylon. If I tell you this morning that we have always lived in Babylon, I would hope that you would understand that when we refer to Babylon, we're not referring to a geographical location. We are referring to a philosophical ideology that is empowered by demons. It's the world. Babylon is that worldly, secular way of thinking where man is the supreme of all that is and God has no place. Babylon is that place of our own imagination where it satisfies our carnality and our natural human desires without the law of God. What is Babylon? It's not a, geog- it's not a question of geography. We know where physical Babylon was once located. We know that it was a short-lived political entity or nation. Babylon is a question of ideology and philosophy. But what are the philosophical, ideological indicators of the spiritual kingdom of Babylon? Well, I just read for you in Daniel chapter 1. Here's how they got there. There were two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, and the people of Israel were forced, the ones that lived through the overtaking by the Assyrians, they were forced to intermarry with other nations. Therefore, in just one generation, all sense of national allegiance could be broken down. This is where we get the Samaritans by the time we open up the New Testament. But the southern kingdom of Judah lasted almost 200 years longer than the northern kingdom of Israel. In the southern kingdom of Judah, they failed to learn from the northern kingdom's mistakes. The northern kingdom just could not give up their golden calves. They could not stop with their idolatry. They could not stop with their national allegiances, trusting their political prowess instead of trusting a holy God. Judah should have learned from Israel's mistakes, but she did not. 
She entered into idolatry. She entered into international agreements with foreign nations that were opposed to the heart and the standards of a holy God. She refused to repent, even though great prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah came and declared the word of the Lord to them. They wanted their way more than they wanted God. And they got it. And so God gave them over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, and in three deportations, they took the people of Judah to Babylon. The first deportation is what I read about in Daniel chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took the best. He took the best of the youth. Hear me. He went after the young people. Babylon goes after our young people. Babylon goes after our inheritance. Babylon goes after our legacy. Babylon goes after our young people. Took the very best, the most beautiful, and the brightest and took them into Babylon to be educated for three years in the University of Babylon, so to speak. They were to eat from the king's table and to drink the king's wine. So the first thing that we see with Babylon is that Babylon is about establishing their identity. Because one of the first things that they're going to do to these young men is that they are going to remove their name and give them a new name. So Babylon is about establishing their identity while confusing and ultimately destroying the identity of those under their power. No one could embrace their cultural ethnicity in Babylon, especially when that ethnicity pointed to the fact that God And God alone is God. Babylon changes names and reassigns the meanings of names. This is a matter of identity. Make everyone the same. If you want to know the heart of Babylon, all you have to do is turn to the book of Genesis, verses 3 and 4. In the building of the Tower of Babel, they're on the plain of Shinar, which we are going to later come to know as Babylon. And they said one to another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. This is one thing that we need to pay attention to. Babylon always builds with bricks. God builds with stones. What's the difference? All bricks look the same. All bricks are the same size and the same dimension, and it's a cookie-cutter kind of deal. But stones, no two stones are the same. God builds with living stones. He builds with us. He tells us that we are to have unity in our diversity. And that diversity, when it's submitted to his kingship, becomes a great strength to us. Bethesda Community Church is one of the most diverse communities that I'm aware of. We have every every tongue, every tribe, and every nation just about represented in this building Monday through Sunday. But we've never asked anyone to give up their diversity because we come together not because we're bricks. We come together because we are living stones surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower 
whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Notice the habit of nations building tall buildings, building to the stars. It's almost as though we are architecturally trying to say we are going to reach God with our skyscrapers and with our ability to keep building higher and higher. And then they said, let us make a name. Babylon is interested in names. In the next chapter, chapter 12, Abram is called out of that same area, Ur of the Chaldee. And God promises Abraham two things. He says, I'm going to make your name great, Abram. See, we can either be busy trying to make our name great, or we can be submitted to Jesus and let him make his name great in and through our lives. And then we learn from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that Abraham was not looking for a city built by the Babylonians. He wasn't looking for a city built by the Egyptians. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. To put it in easy, simple terms, the Bible is a tale of two cities. It's the city of Babylon, and it's the city of God. Everything really does come down to this. When these boys are taken captive into Babylon, they have no choice about being taken from their family and their homeland. They have no choice about having names assigned to them by the Babylonian governors. See, they had no choice which city they were in. Here's where their choice came. They weren't asking the question, what city do I live in? They knew which city they lived in. They lived in Babylon. But here's the question they ask. What city do I live for? We are in this world. We are in Babylon. But we are not of Babylon. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. See, the problem is not the church in Babylon, the problem is Babylon in the church. And it comes down to our need to answer this question, which city do we live for? Daniel and his company made up their minds that they were going to live for the city of God. See, here's the key to overcoming this ploy of Babylon to diminish your identity. If you can inwardly accept the identity that God has given to you, hear me. If you can inwardly accept the identity that God has given to you, then nothing on the outside can take that from you. There was a time when if I were to say, I am a Christian, everyone would assume that that meant that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that I believe that the word is authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit, that I am a person who believes in love, that I am a person who believes that there is one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ the Son, that my Christianity meant that I was going to be generous and that the fruit of the Spirit were going to be growing in my life. But now, if I say that I am a Christian, I am just going to speak plain to you guys today. Now, if I say that I am a Christian, 
Number one, it aligns me with a political party. And I'm telling you now, our Christianity is bigger than any political party. The kingdoms of this world, they will all pass away. Every one of them. The kingdoms of this world, they will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. I am affiliated with a heavenly kingdom. Number two, if I say that I'm a Christian and that I believe that marriage is, a, is identified and defined as one man, un, one woman for life, I'm immediately put into a category of homophobic. I believe that marriage is one man, one woman for life. But there is no hate in my heart for individuals who have chosen alternate lifestyles. It is time, church, that we reclaim our identity before Jesus. Whenever people pursue the creation of their own identity apart from God, it will only lead to confusion and chaos. The confusion of identity is being played out in two ways in our world today. Number one, a different name is given to a person or an object. For instance, in the case of our text this morning, Daniel, his name is changed to Belteshazzar. But Daniel remains the same person only his name changes. The second way this is played out, keep the name, just change what it means. Again, 50 years ago, the word tolerance, coming from the Greek word telerare, once meant, I disagree with you, but I will uphold your right to publicly state your view. That is no longer what tolerance means. Tolerance means that I will have to let you say anything you want to and I have to agree with you. It's not just listening to you, now I have to enter into agreement with you. Tolerance today only works one way. I must tolerate all other beliefs and ideas while keeping my own faith quiet and private. This really falls into the first untruth of the book. Anything that makes you awkward or uncomfortable is to be avoided at all costs. When we are doing Christianity the way it should be done, it will make people feel awkward and uncomfortable because they'll be convicted of their sin, and conviction is never comfortable. So let's review for just a moment. Babylon as an ideology does the following. It removes you from your foundation, your place of origin, and it re-identifies you or causes you to have your identity confused. In 1962, a gentleman by the name of Karl Popper, in a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies, he said unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. Think about that. In our story this morning, the next thing that we come across is the king's table. These boys, along with Daniel, are to be given portions from the king's table along with his wine. But this is where Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself from that which came from the king's table. Why was this food and wine considered defiled or unclean? 
Well, perhaps it was food offered to idols. Maybe it was food that contained unclean elements. Maybe it was food that wasn't kosher and violated their faith. Maybe it was wine offered to idols. See, it's not just the food that's to be declined, it's the wine as well. Throughout the pages of Scripture, just like there are two kingdoms, Zion and Babylon, there are two tables. There's the table of the Lord, and there's the table of demons. Now, I'm not making this up because in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul even says, you are eating from the table of demons. Psalm 23 is probably our most favorite table. This is a table that God prepares for us in the presence of our enemies. I love that. In Psalm 78, verse 19, he says that he's going to make a table for us in the wilderness. We know from our study of the tabernacle that there's the table of his presence. And every Sunday night, we, could, we come together in this place, in this room, and we partake of the table of the Lord, and we call it communion. That's the table of the Lord. Then there's the table of Nebuchadnezzar. The table of the king. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, there's the table of demons. Now, there are specific things being served at both tables. I'm going to distill it down for you like this. According to Galatians chapter 5, the table of demons is going to have the fruit of the flesh. And it's going to be served to you. Arguments. Offenses hypocrisy, sexual immorality, drunkenness, rebellious behavior, stubbornness. Name your spiritual fruit that's being born out of your flesh. But also in Galatians 6, it describes what's on the Lord's table. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, kindness, temperance, and faith. So the question comes down to, what city are you living for and whose table are you eating from? If you are eating from a table of arguing and complaining and lying and competitiveness, a table of offense, a table of tearing your brothers and your sisters down, a table of pointing out everything that's wrong about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a table that's constantly telling dirty jokes or saying things that are off color and out of character. Get away from that table! Because the more you eat from that table, the more you will become what you have just eaten. Instead, move over and eat from the table of the Lord. Because at his table there is love, there is peace, and there is joy, and there is all the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit for you to partake of. I used to have to drive from Fort Worth to Alabama three or four times a year when my mom and dad were alive so that I could spend time with them. One of the habits that I formed is that I would memorize scripture and then I would meditate on that scripture for the long drive because this is in the day before satellite radio and all those other really great things that we have access to. So I literally had to entertain myself for 14 hours on that drive. One year... 
I had been really busy with school and I'd not been able to memorize any new scripture. And so I pulled out Psalm 23 and I thought, you know, this is just good. I'll meditate on Psalm 23 as I drive home to be, at, to be with my family. By the time I got to Little Rock, Arkansas, I had come to that place where it says, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. By this point in time, I was praying Psalm 23. And these words came out of my mouth. It was revelation. I have never gotten over it. These words came out of my mouth. Father, I thank you that you have prepared a table of protection for me in the presence of distress. I thank you that you have prepared a table of abundance for me in the presence of poverty. I thank you, my Father, that you have prepared a table of victory for me in the presence of defeat, that you have prepared a table of deliverance for me in the presence of oppression. That's what's at the table of the Lord. The table's prepared for you and the table's prepared for me. The question that remains is, which table will you sit at? We are all sitting at someone's table. Look at what you're eating. Are you eating the filth and the garbage that comes out of your television? Are you eating off the filth and the garbage that comes off of so many podcasts and radio programs? Or are you eating the truth of God's word? I was recently asked by someone, and they were very sincere in the question. They asked me, which prophets are you following? Now, in the Marty world, I said, oh, I'm going to love this conversation. I'm really all about Ezekiel, and I've really gotten into Zechariah, and I'm looking toward Daniel. And they looked at me with a blank stare and said, no, 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 which prophet on the list of prophets, modern-day prophets, are you listening to? I do not deny nor do I in any way negate the prophetic role in office to the body of Christ. It is a powerful, wonderful role, but it does not usurp the power of God's word in our lives. <laughs> Whose table are you eating from? Are you eating from the word of God? Or are you eating from the latest news release? This word is truth, and this word gives me life. The table of the Lord serves the fruit of the Spirit. The table of demons serves the fruit of the flesh. But why not drink the wine? That's a mystery. Remember in chapter 1 we saw that Nebuchadnezzar took the holy vessels from the temple? Could it be that Daniel and these three boys in their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit said no to the king's table and no to the king's wine, not because they knew, but because God knew in chapter 5, Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, is going to have this very pagan feast and pull out the vessels from God's holy temple and pour his wine in it, and they were going to use the vessels of God for a pagan feast. When we say no, through the little things, it strengthens us and empowers us and sets us up to say no to the bigger issues. There are times when we think, well, it's just a little thing. There are no little things. The little things accumulate and grow into big things. The little things begin to take away our ability to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and allows us to buy in to bigger, more horrendous lies and offenses. 
If you're going to stand in Babylon, and God has called us to stand in Babylon, your character, my character, is crucial. These boys had to read their literature, attend their classes, and learn their language. But they did not submit their mind nor their soul to their idolatrous interpretation of the universe. They still believed that God was the creator and the sustainer of all that is. And this is the antithesis of that second lie. These four young men could have said, well, I just feel like I need to eat something from the king's table. I don't want to offend him. Surely it wouldn't hurt if I just ate a little something. I just feel so hungry today. And, and surely it would be okay. They did not trust their feelings. They relied on what they knew to be true. The final act. In chapter 3, these young men have been able to live under the radar, and not only live under the radar, they've been able to prosper under the radar, to continue walking in their faith with the knowledge of who they really are and with their character intact. And this worked until you got to chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar had a statue built 90 feet tall. Then he declared a law. When the music sounded, all were to bow down to the golden image. The top, most important people in every area of science, literature, and government were gathered. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused to bow down. The king even said, hey, maybe you don't understand. When the music plays, play it again, boys, bow down. And these three young men said, oh, king, it does not matter. We do not owe you an explanation. And this so angered Nebuchadnezzar. Can I tell you, Babylon will get along with us just fine until we don't. And we have gotten to the don't part. Because what Babylon is trying to do is to take away our confession and our testimony that Jesus Christ is the one true Son of God. At the end of the day, that's what Babylon's after. It may be, it may look like containing, your, containing and continuing in your identity in the face of opportunities to change. It may look like saying no to the food that comes off the king's table, but it will ultimately end up at the fiery furnace. Church, this is where we're headed. This is why I'm preaching this message today. Today's the day and now is the time to prepare your heart and your mind and your imagination. Now's the time to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to try you and to see if there is anything within you that is of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar heated the furnace up so hot that the men who were going to take these three boys and toss them in there were burned to death before they ever even got the boys in. That reflects the anger of this despotic king. The top people in every area were to bow down. See, they're not wanting these three boys to deny that God is God. What they're wanting him to, them to do is to deny that he is the God. If they had just changed one little indefinite article, if these boys had just up and said, Jesus is a God. Everyone would have applauded. 
the furnace would have died down and they would have gone home. Can I tell you that if we as the Church of Jesus Christ just added that one little indefinite article, we'd get along with everybody. But I can't do it. He's not a God. He is the God. And there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. The lesson from chapter 3 is simply this. We need to keep in mind that the power and the scope of all kings and kingdoms and their rule have a limited tenure. They are all coming to an end except for the kingdom of God. There's a musical component to this. And I just need to throw this in because I think the musical aspect is important. Much deception and many defiling ideas are imported into our minds and hearts through the vehicle of music. I celebrate the decision of Bethesda Community Church to only sing and promote those songs that stay true to Scripture and promote the person of Jesus Christ. They can be popular, they can come and they can go, but if Jesus is not at the center of them, then they are not sung in this place. Then there's rationalization. I wonder if any of these boys, if their friends said, hey guys, just go ahead and give them what they want. It's a meaningless gesture. It means nothing. Just bow down when you hear the music play. Then Nebuchadnezzar calls them forward. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, our God can deliver us. But even if, even if we still cannot bow down. God's looking for an even-if people. God can deliver us. God has and God will continue to deliver us. But there are moments when God doesn't deliver us because he has a higher purpose and there's something else much larger at stake. I can stand before you today and I can tell you that God has delivered me from many things, but I can also tell you there have been many things God did not deliver me from and had me walk through them instead. This event turns us to the third lie. Nehemiah tried to turn their convictions into an us and them context. But these young men would not allow it. So the title of this message this morning is The Cure for Babylon. Here's the cure for Babylon. Of course, Jesus is the cure for Babylon. It goes without saying. The cure for Babylon is to be fully god when I was 19 years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and God gripped my life, and now for 50 year, 40 years, he has never let me go. There have been times when I've slipped, and there have been times when I've fallen, but he always, with his grip, picked me up and held me firm. To be God-gripped doesn't mean you'll get it right every time. To be God-gripped simply means that when you do slip, slide, and fall, he'll pick you back up again. <laughs> to the man or the woman that is God-gripped, to be God-gripped allows you to re reinterpret the events of your life through a God-centered lens so that you are no longer the victim. You're the victor and you're the thriver. To be God-gripped compels you to serve him, to obey him, to preach the gospel, even at great cost. Paul's last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Paul's about to die. 
in Rome because he has preached the gospel. So what does Paul tell Timothy? Preach the gospel because that's what God gripped people do. They preach the gospel even if it costs them their own life. To be God-gripped softens your heart to love those who do not always understand you, appreciate you, and believe in you. To be God-gripped positions you to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ and to find great honor and reward in personal weaknesses, knowing that in your weakness, Christ is made strong. These four truths, ideas, they fly in the face of the untruths that started our conversation this morning. And I really do end with this. The cry of the God-gripped is consistent throughout the millennia. Our Christian faith has been built on the lives of God-gripped men and women. It was the God-gripped Noah who built what no one had ever seen or thought of in preparation for a weather condition that no one had ever heard of. Abraham left all that was familiar and comfortable to be a wanderer, believing and investing in a land that he personally would never be privileged to live in. A God-gripped person is confronted with despots, with nothing but a shepherd's staff, demanding that Pharaoh let his people go. It was the God-gripped who stood on tiptoe to get a glimpse of the one who was to come, recognizing that their present system of worship and prescribed route to a relationship with God was just inadequate. These people trusted God and took down giants with a slingshot and a stone. They received their dead back to life. They prophesied of a forthcoming day that they would not personally see. The God-gripped point beyond themselves to the one who is yet to come. And when the God-gripped are ripped from their homeland, they have their identity and their integrity threatened. They will not compromise, even when they're thrown into a fiery furnace or a cave filled with lions. They did not seek a way to escape, but they held firm to their convictions. They did not back down from their testimony that there is only one true God, and he alone is creator of all. It was a God-gripped woman who said yes to the Lord and gave birth to the incarnate Christ. It was the God-gripped who were present at the cross, present at the tomb, and gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. These same God-gripped people preached Jesus until governments collapsed and empires fell and lifeless religion and idolatry struck into the darkness and the walls of division that kept us from each other and from the love of a holy God came tumbling down. It was the God-gripped, not the wealthy, not the educated, nor the highly positioned people, but the God-gripped, who challenged the systems and the culture of their day, bringing the light and the glory of a resurrected Christ into dungeons of moral darkness, declaring that the veil between God and man, Jew and Gentile, has been torn from top to bottom, and now whosoever will can come and drink freely from the well of salvation. We're in this place this morning because the God-gripped allowed the strength of the Lord Jesus to be made manifest in their weakness. What then shall we do with this truth? We have benefited from the life and the faith of the God-gripped, but today it is your turn and it is my turn. Will you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and take your place among the God-gripped? Will you allow him to grip you until all other grips have to let go? Until addictions and strongholds lose their power over your life. 
Will you allow this God to get such a hold on you that offenses and unforgiveness are overcome with love and humility? Will you permit him to grip you until your life is consumed by him, grip you until entitlement and selfishness are washed away by the blood of his suffering? Are you ready to be gripped by God until your past failures and sins are washed away and nailed to his cross? The spirit of Babylon is powerless over the God-gripped, the man or the woman who has surrendered their life to Jesus. Are you ready to be God-gripped to such an extent that you can submit to his lordship and declare that unity is your heart cry? I'm asking you this morning, if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the first step toward being God-gripped is to receive Jesus with every head up and with every eye open. If you are in this house this morning and you are saying, I want to be God-gripped, I want that kind of salvation, I want you to stand right where you are. Thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you. And if you are standing for the first time to say that you want to receive Jesus, I want you to come talk to me or Pastor Brent after the service. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you died for my sin and that you rose on the third day. I ask you to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and grip me for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.